This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. Uh, thanks for being with us. We had a couple week layoff, but our fearless leader, Alan Hall, here is back with us. Alan, how are you? Good to be back in snowy Massachusetts. Welcome to winter. Welcome to winter indeed. All right, so on today's show, we'll talk about uh, first, well, we got a lot of uh, EVTOL news, so we'll have a, a lot of that. But first, we'll catch up on uh, some interesting news in the supersonic space, Phil uh, Condit who's the former CEO of Boeing, is joining the Boom Supersonic team. So we'll talk about the implications there. We're going to talk a bunch about the Boeing 777 uh, engine uh, troubles that happened on a United flight out of Denver recently. That was a crazy video, um, which got a lot of press. And then the EVTOL space, we'll talk about the Air Force uh, tapping jaunt to look through uh, noise research. Uh, the Terrafugia company pulling out of Massachusetts with a, they had a car you could drive on the road or a, a flying car you could actually drive on the road. Rolls Royce, their hybrid uh, taxi. Um, some interesting thoughts on uh, landing sites and battery drain. And lastly, we'll talk a bunch about Ehang, which has had some some very tough press recently with some uh, research out of Wolfpack, who is a short seller uh, on their stock. So now let's start with Phil Condit. So he is the former CEO of Boeing. He's been announced that he's uh, extending the the Boom Supersonic team as an advisor. Um, obviously, like you know, ran a, a major aviation company, but is his expertise going to be important to to getting the supersonic jet to market? It's a really good question because a supersonic company is not going to make that many aircraft, right? That's part of the limitation of that particular aircraft because of a variety of reasons, the expense of it, the, the, the uses of it. There's not a lot of demand for that type of aircraft, but um, it does take a certain kind of management scheme to one, fundraise, and then two, to, to certify the aircraft. And I, I, I see this, you see this a lot um, in other industries where, a uh, former head of a, of a large organization uh, all of a sudden ends up uh, being on the board of a smaller organization. And it, it it adds credibility, but does it really add anything in terms of the, the function of the company and moving the company to a, a certified product and a productive product? I think the answer is no in most cases. And I, I would assume that the investment community would realize that uh, Phil Condit's not down there designing the aircraft, that that ain't happening. Um, if he has any connections on selling the aircraft, that would be super, but that isn't what they're talking about. I think it's more of like, hey, I have this former executive from Boeing and he's gonna get paid a certain amount of money per year to sit on our board and look at this shiny object versus am I producing an aircraft and get an aircraft out the door? I, 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 I think we, we get, spun up too much on the investment side, which is desperately needed. You're going to spend a billion dollars making this boom aircraft easily versus focusing on what needs to be done, which is get the aircraft built. And I would much prefer that the press announcement was, is that we have something flying, a demonstrator flying, that we're we're 80% way to a demonstrator flying, or we're, we're ramping up production, or we're close to certifying this aircraft. I would much rather hear press releases and see press releases focused on that 
than on bringing an outside person in to sit on a board. I, I just don't see how that adds a lot of value to your company because honestly, if Phil Condit wanted to walk away tomorrow and live in Hawaii, he could do it. Uh, there's, there's no downside for him in this, right? But there's downside for all the manufacturing people, all the engineers, everybody that's you know is earning a salary trying to keep this product alive. There's a huge downside. So it just seems a little misplaced. And I've seen it more in the EVTOL area where they've brought in former FA administrators and they brought in other engine, other CEOs of Boeing or Lockheed or whoever it is. And it doesn't do anything for me, maybe because I've just been too jaded to be in the aircraft industry long enough to know that doesn't make any damn difference of what happens. But um, it, it, I think we're seeing a lot of press in a lot of different areas about new aircraft design and everybody's got to slow down a little bit slow down and realize that this is a five-year project. And if some guy walks into a board, it means literally nothing, absolutely nothing. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of, uh, like you said, there's a lot of companies right now building out-of-the-box aircraft. And it just seems like a really tough, tough climate to do that. And even though there's a lot of money thrown at it, and yeah, like you said, you know, Mr. Khan, it's got a lot of experience, um, but maybe not in this sector or at this size of a company where this is going to get out there, you know, hopefully he plays a good mentorship role and can be a good advisor and all that. But yeah, it seems, it seems more of a, of a press play than, than maybe anything. You could say the same thing, a lot of EV tall area where the aircraft production rates are going to be relatively small and the, the size of aircraft is small. Why are we not seeing hires from uh, Cirrus? or Textron, or Bell, <laughs> or Robinson Air Helicopters. Why are we not seeing those people who actually have skill sets being drawn into those new companies is a mystery to me because they're doing it every single day and they can bring a ton of knowledge, much more than a CEO of a former large aerospace company. So let's move on to the Boeing 777. Obviously this was you know, a passenger was taking a video of this outside of his window of this engine on fire, which is terrifying. But also it's really interesting because I read through a bunch of comments about it on Twitter and some of them by people who clearly don't understand, um, you know, redundancy and all this stuff. They're like, I can't believe Boeing would build a thing that would allow this to happen. But really on the other side is, you know, the more sensible side is it should be astounding that this is actually happening and that plane is not crashing because if this was an automobile what would your automobile be doing it would be stopped right if it was a boat it would be sinking to the bottom of the ocean but the fact that this plane has an engine destroyed flaming and the plane is still just happily cruising along really is a testament i think it just it, there's there's two ways you could look at this story as an as an aerospace outsider which is again the uh that's terrifying i never want to be on a plane again if these engines could catch fire or it's like oh I guess a whole engine can catch fire and the plane still doesn't crash. That's pretty amazing. It is. And it, it, it wasn't always that way. In fact, uh, you know, the failure of that engine, it looks like it was due to an inlet fan, uh, probably a crack that let go of a significant portion of one of the fan blades. And then that 
went through the containment system and there's a containment system on all these newer engines and that, that engine's not particularly new it's a pratt and whitney 4000 so it's not a particularly new engine but they there's just if you look at the video and if you have a chance to watch, check on youtube or twitter you can see that video a lot of places there is a containment ring it's kind of a, a tanned colored ring that goes all the way around the engine where the inlet fan blades are and that's meant to catch to catch those blades coming off and to contain them and not let them come outside of that engine nacelle area well clearly that didn't happen something happened where uh either the, it looked like the containment system was penetrated all the way through and then it ripped off the cowlings on both sides and the thrust reversers and all this other stuff came came off the engine and the engines are designed not to do that right they, they actually run tests on engines to show that they can take an inlet fan separation and it contain it and not destroy the engine uh, so you know and boeing has nothing to do with that Let's just get that out first. Boeing has nothing to do with the engine certification besides, you know, making sure it has the proper thrust to lift the aircraft. That's essentially it. Pratt & Whitney or GE or Rolls-Royce or whoever certifies the engine as a, as a, an assembly, as a bolt-on piece, right? The Boeing part is designing the aircraft to handle the loads. So if the engine does lose an inlet fan, if you can see it, you see it vibrate when it loses that fan. And aerodynamically, it's not so cool either but it's sitting there what we call windmilling so you're getting this getting this vibration effect from that missing fan blade being unbalanced and it shaking the, the engine pylon is attached to the airplane wing you're designing the system and all the equipment in the aircraft to take that vibration without losing function so the boeing side is assuming that the, that engine does let go that i don't start losing other aircraft systems or i don't crack the pylon and the engine falls off so there's a lot on the on the Boeing side, on the safety side, which is done. But the initial problem is in the Pratt and Whitney. If there is a problem, I think they're going to find. It sounds like they're going to ground the aircraft and force them to do inspections. That the issue resides in the inlet fans for that Pratt and Whitney built. Not has nothing to do with Boeing. Boeing has no control over that. Besides calling Pratt and Whitney to complain about it, that's essentially it. But you're right in this sense. That airplane didn't crash. And there's good reason for that airplane to have other system problems and structural problems and start coming apart. And it didn't because it was designed to handle that. That's a function of the aircraft engineers working their tails off to make to make sure that stuff doesn't happen. And the FAA regulations and the FAA, um, FAA oversight to make sure that when these events occur, and they do occur because stuff breaks, that it doesn't take down the whole airplane. That it's a sing it's not a single point failure. And that's the beauty of the way that the, that the aircraft design system works today is that we're trying to eliminate single point failures and creating catastrophic conditions. And um, so you're seeing the result of that. So even though it, it is very dramatic and that you're right, Dan, it, it is a very dramatic thing to happen. They heard it on the ground, right? And people on the ground immediately looked up and started taking images from the ground because it was so loud. And they saw this big puff of smoke come out the back of this aircraft engine, but it landed. Right, it landed safely, and the pilots didn't overreact. Pilots did a fantastic job of of taking all the information in, processing it, declaring the emergency, doing all the things, put the aircraft back on the ground, rel relatively uh, calmly. Right, it, it and every, if the audio and the video from inside the the, the uh, aircraft cabin was everybody was applauding, and they should because those pilots, you know, that's that's pretty dang good to 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 do that. But they're also trained to handle those situations, so. A lot of kudos all the way around. There really is. All right. So let's move on. We got a, a lot of stuff on our list here with, uh, well, first we'll talk about this is not an EVTOL. This is a very quirky aircraft. The uh, So apparently Terrafugia, which has a 
flying car, which the wings literally fold up and it can drive down the road, which is crazy, um, which had got FAA um, certified is apparently, you know, it looks like they're shutting down. They've uh, laid off a lot of employees and it looks like they're potentially moving a lot of their design and stuff to China. So, Alan, you're up in Massachusetts uh, where they're headquartered. Or headquartered. Um, what do you know about this crazy flying car? Why does it exist, number one? And then what's happening with the company? Frankly, it was a, a sort of a, a brain trust uh, that came out of MIT, if I remember correctly, uh, that had an idea of having a flying car, right? I mean, that's been a, a goal from a lot of engineers for near 70 years now. Uh, and he thought he could put this thing together relatively simply and and did come up with a concept vehicle and did get it in some sort of production state. I think the actual designer left a couple left the company a couple of years ago. There was a restructuring that happened because it takes a lot of money to do these things. It's straight up. It takes a ton of money. But the, the automobile aircraft was certified under the light sport aircraft rules that the FAA has. So it's not like... Uh, it's not like you're flying in a Cessna 172. It's it's there's a reduced set of regulations. It has a lot to do with the airspeed and the number of passengers and its range and all those other factors. So it's it's basically a simplified airplane. That's what it is. Um, so they can get it certified under the light sport aircraft rules. The problem is that there was never uh, a, a, a set marketplace for it. That they didn't have a ton of sales for it, and it has happened. A lot more recently, when aircraft companies get in trouble, and I, I'm thinking of Mooney off the top of my head, but I know there's some others, uh, they get acquired by these Chinese holding companies and everything gets, gets shipped to China. And uh, from a, you know, I always wonder if that's smart from the United States sense to let that happen. Maybe there's no technology there, so they, they say, okay, fine. Uh, but where where are the, these Chinese companies getting the funding to do this thing? And how does that all work? Are they going to really try to build this thing? Or is it more of just taking the technology and the drawings and the information that they can glean off the drawings? And they don't really, give a care, they don't really care about the aircraft or car, as, as the case may be. You don't really care about that all that much. Um, it is odd. I, I got to admit, it is odd. If you look at the amount of Chinese investment in the United States aerospace system, and the, particularly in the small aircraft side, there's a lot. There's a lot of it, and um, I'm not assigning nefarious uh, thoughts or motives on it, but it just seems unusual. And um, if the United States intends on being a aerospace leader, and it essentially is, along with the, like Airbus and France, of, of being aerospace leaders in Brazil, honestly, Brazil's aerospace leader, uh, then you know you need to kind of protect that technology, whatever technology exists there, and make sure you grow the industry. So moving on, Rolls-Royce is a uh, obviously a big engine manufacturer, and they are moving into the EVTOL space. So they hope to have their own version, which can be a hybrid, in 18 months, and it's going to be a traditional gas turbine engine with an electrical system as well. So, Alan, you give this the thumbs up, I feel like. Uh, there, It makes it... You like the hybrids. You like the hybrids. Today. I like the hybrids because of the range that they can produce, right? If you, if you can put av gas into a, a into a, a fuel container and turn that into electricity to drive some motors, and it makes the range go from 
50 miles to 300 miles, then yes, that, that makes a ton of sense to me. Because limiting the range of an aircraft just limits your sales. And so, or, or it changes the dynamic of how you have to operate it. So instead of having three or four hour long flights in a day, you have 10, 15 minute flights or 20, 15 minute flights. So you have to re reconstruct the way the, the economic models, the way you're going to make money with an aircraft based on what its range is. That's a problem. I think it's a problem. If the efficiency of these electric aircraft is because the operating costs are reduced, and that's the answer because you don't have a piston engine on it or a turbine engine and you get this little electric motor there and you can reduce the amount of cost to operate it, then total sense. But it would be like, and I'll give you a good example, or sort of analogy, I'll give it in two in cars. If, so if, Dan, if you're going to the auto sales place and you want to go buy a car and the, and the, the salesman walks up to you and says, hey, Dan, I've got, the, the, I got three cars for you. I got a car that go 15 miles. Really reliable, really energy efficient, 15 miles. I got this car that goes 50 miles. Still pretty reliable, you know, it's good. It'll get you there where you need to go. Or I have one that goes 300 miles. Really efficient, still really efficient. Maybe not as efficient as a 15-mile car, but still pretty darn efficient. And a lot more reliable because if I get out in the wilderness somewhere, I want to be able to get home. I, what decision point are you going to make there? Right As an, as an owner, I'm going to make the car that gets me 300 miles because I, I need to get to grandma's house at some point. Right? I need to have a car that does that. And I think the same thing can be said in aircraft. Uh the, the further the range is going to provide additional benefits you haven't even thought of yet, like uh, air ambulances and all those other things. Uh, people get hurt out in the wilderness all the time. They're not 15 miles from a hospital. You know, they're 100 miles from a hospital. Yeah. Right? So don't you think Rolls-Royce is actually putting, doesn't it feel like Rolls-Royce engineers have thought this through a little bit and saying the range of EV tow aircraft is not far enough quite yet and we can fill that market? That's what it feels like to me. Yeah, it seems like everyone in this space has been like rushing to be the first one. And maybe they're just like, eh, let's let them fight it out. And then when there's, you know, half of the competitors are gone and we've seen what some of them can and want to do, then we can sneak in there. Like you just like wait, see what the best course of action is. Because it seems like at this point, if you were to start a brand new company today, knowing what you know about some of these, you know, companies, which we're talking about one of them today, uh, Ehang later, you'd probably be like, eh, these bunch don't seem like they're doing very well. And there's all these new limitations that seem to be coming out. Maybe we should do X. So yeah, it seems like it, it could definitely end up being something like that where someone who waited and let some of these early companies make some wrong decisions and maybe have some ignominious failure. They go, like, hey, all right, let's do this now. Like we, we see what's wrong. Let's do it. So maybe that's maybe that's Rolls-Royce. There was a place in time, and there still is a place in time for hybrid electric vehicles, cars. But we haven't gone through that on the aerospace side really at all. I think we need to go through that hybrid stage first. And then when the energy density of the batteries picks up, then, yeah, we can do all batteries at some point. But we're not quite there yet. And I think Rolls is making a, a really interesting... Uh, counterpoint to all batteries, which is to say, hey, we can increase your range reliability by a factor of five, probably, uh, and and still, you know, really reduce emissions, still have a quiet aircraft, do all the things that you want to do without, without, you know, limited range. It makes a lot of sense to me. Well, speaking of uh, quiet, 
uh, the U.S. Air Force, their AF Works program, AFWERX, um, is contracted with Jaunt Air Mobility to lead a team to figure out how loud these are going to be. Um, why do you feel like they tap Jaunt, which is obviously going to be less noisy than others, right? Because they have the gyrocopter design, uh, the slower rotating ro- main rotor, um, but they're having them lead some research in, into the uh, the noise sector. Well, I think it has advantages for an Air Force or even an Army application where you want to be able to come in quietly or Navy application where you want to come in quietly and leave quietly uh, and really come really come in vertically. Because I think a lot of the EV tolls we're talking about today are not going to do a lot of really vertical takeoff and landing. They're kind of be, they're going to lift a couple feet off the ground and start moving forward. They have to for energy purposes. But the, the jaunt one is a little bit different in the sense that it is it does have a, like a truly quasi-helicopter mode to it. Uh, from a military application standpoint, it may have a lot of military applications. If you remember when the U.S. went in to find Osama bin Laden, uh, remember that they crashed, they brought in these helicopters, and the reason they brought those particular helicopters, one, they were stealthy, and two, they were quiet. And they crashed one into they crashed one on on the site. They had to burn it. But you, you think that can't be the only place that the military services need to have a quiet air, aircraft helicopter to come in and land and get the heck out of someplace. So it, it makes a lot of sense uh, to evaluate the technology and to see where the applications lie. And that's what Air Force Works is trying to do. And 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 then look for the commercial purposes. So is there a military application? Probably yes. Is there a then a commercial application for it? John's making the case that there's a commercial application for it. And again, John's one of those companies like Rolls-Royce, which is looking at a non-battery electric solution, a fuel-based electric solution, a hybrid. Uh, and and I'm, my guess is that the Air Force Works is going to be looking at that also because it just extends the range so much that the military applications then become a little more real. Well, another interesting article, uh, this one also out of futureflight.aero. Uh, um, talking about ESTOL, so electric short takeoff and landing versus EVTOLs and the infrastructure needed to make those work, you know, landing pads on top of buildings, all that stuff, whether or not, you know, a short um, runway could be a better option. So I know you have some strong thoughts on this. And, and one of the issues that's raised in the article, which is interesting, is that um, I'll read the quote here, that it's a bit of mis- misconception to think that an EVTOL will come in at 1,000 or 2,000 feet above ground level and then descend vertically and land like a traditional hel- oh that's the end of the quote uh, where i'm going to quote it but you know like a traditional helicopter would that's just going to take up too much energy is that right vertical flight is awful in terms of energy burn so you're most likely not going to do that it's going to be something much more like a traditional aircraft approach in terms of uh, coming into the landing spot you're going to land vertically and take off vertically but you're not going to be there very long so you need to have some frontage area in front of your landing spot which is clear if that makes sense. So you don't necessarily need a runway there, but you can't have high high voltage lines or towers or buildings in front of your landing spot because that that, that won't work for these eVTOLs. They need to have a clear place to they're going to go land. They're going to they're not going to have any vertical or they're not going to need forward speed when they land, but just before they land they will have a good bit of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean that's the big and is that where some is that an area where hybrid engines could really excel where they maybe use gasoline to take off and then they get going when they're in the air then they use the cheaper electricity cheaper from an energy standpoint absolutely right and there there are certain parts of the flight takeoff and landing vertical takeoff and vertical landing which are huge energy users 
and it just eats at the battery capacity because you need to have a certain amount of battery capacity to make the flight plus reserves. And if you're doing a lot of hovering, it's just really cooking the batteries. Whereas if you had a, you know, a, a basically a hybrid engine where you're burning fuel to create energy, then you could hover there for an extended length of time and you could land vertically from a thousand feet. You could do those things, I think. Uh, but isn't it odd that we don't see a lot of it? But the infrastructure needs to be needs to be. If we're going to start building infrastructure, and that's the big point here. If we're going to start building infrastructure, what do we build? Do we build traditional helipads where the helicopter comes down from a thousand feet vertically, or do we build something in which, for three hundred yards in any direction, there's open space? It's different. Yeah, yeah. It's going to change. It's going to change the way. Uh, the number of spots you can land clearly it's going to change uh, like building code restrictions right so around airports you can't build big towers so if you're defining a place as a landing site for an EV tall that's battery powered and it needs to have a certain amount of frontage area and and on, on the other side of it too in case you miss a landing you want to have some sort of uh, capture system then what does that look like in terms of building codes it's going to be restrictive right it's going to limit limit your neighbor is what they can do Right, your neighbor couldn't add us. Maybe couldn't add the second floor into their house because it interflight interfere with your flight pattern. And does that make a lot of sense? Because that's what happens right now with airports, and why there's so many fights around airports is because uh, homes encroach the airport, which was built out in the middle of a field somewhere. But eventually, the the homes will crowd around it, obviously. Uh, and there's restrictions on the homes. And you're gonna have the same thing here. Same thing here. So let's move on to our final segment here about Ehang. So some really interesting allegations about Ehang uh, brought about by the uh, sort of activist investor group Wolfpack Research. They released a report uh, basically accusing Ehang of, you know, everything from having no real intellectual property, not having the facilities to build the vehicles, you know, these aircraft that they claim to be building, using inferior parts, having no security at their warehouses, um, you know, misprojecting revenues and potentially just misleading people. I mean, there's a lot of really, inter- and of course, this is coming from uh, a short, they hold a short position. So they're invested in seeing, um, you know, Ehang stock go down. So you have to take at least with that grain of salt that any report that they have is going to be, you know, they want to see that stock go down and they believe it will, but uh, it's in part because of the allegations that they're, they're, they're proving here. So Alan, a lot of, there's a lot to unpack in this article and there's some great reporting by evtol.com. So definitely check them out. We'll link in the description. They've done an awesome job, um, just for the space in general. Um, but yeah, there's so much about eHang that they're basically saying this company is just doesn't has, has no chance of delivering on anything that is claiming. eHang stock has soared more than 1000% in the past three months, reaching highs of over $120 per share which is high, uh, and a market capitalization above $6 billion, with a B, $6 billion. So if you have a $6 billion capital capitalization, uh, what, that means, what that means is that you should be producing aircraft and you should have some infrastructure already in place to produce aircraft. Well, the, this Wolfpack Research basically sent somebody over to China to look around and kick the tires to see what was going on. And they found a bunch of empty buildings and no and no production facilities or, or nobody working in a production facility. 
and that doesn't make any sense, right? So yeah, you, I can see why they would want to short sell when the when the stock rises so high, and yet there's nothing there. You should be able to see hundreds of people working. That's what you should see. So it makes you really wonder what's going on. And Ehang has put out a couple of YouTube videos in the last week or so. One of them showing the, the the factories at their new at their new site, the new factories, and the factories are empty. I mean, they're beautiful, and there's some equipment in them, but there's no people in them. It doesn't look like anybody's even been in them. Uh, so, are you a six billion dollar company with two empty factories, or are you a million dollar company with empty factories? What are you right now, and what does that mean, right? As an investor, what does that mean? I don't know. I'm not invested in that space, nor would I invest in that space. But uh, it, it does raise a lot of questions about investors in these spaces, like how much research is going on versus what's happening as the stock price moves around. Is it real? Is it real? What, what do you think, Dan? I mean, you you do some investing. What, is, what does this say to you when you see things like this? Yeah, I also don't have any investments in any, any of the these companies, um, especially the EVTL space is so, seems so crazy and volatile. Um, you know, of the books I read, the number one thing is invest in companies you understand I don't understand any of this stuff, this what's going on here. So that's for sure. But I mean, it's it's crazy. What it reminds me of is the WeWork collapse of their IPO just a year and a year and a half ago, where that wasn't a short seller. That was mainly, I think, Scott Galloway and some other just business minds who were looking at this, at their numbers of this new company that was hot, right? And highly valued. And they're like, wait, exactly what you said. When you kick the tires of WeWork back in the day, they're like, this company has a terrible business. They're billing, they're burning a billion dollars a quarter. Like they're, they're, I don't know if that was the exact figure, but they were burning an incredible amount of cash. It was projected like they're going to run out of money based on the, their current cash burn in like six months. They don't own any of the buildings that they're renting out. Like, how does this, basically everyone's just like, this doesn't make any sense. This is a joke. This, like, this should not be happening. And, and it feels a lot like this. Um, but yeah, it just, Again, I mean, I know Ehang has responded to some of this. Like, for example, Wolfpack said that uh, they're using T motors, which I guess is a hobby grade motor from from the few prototypes that they saw in their warehouse. And Ehang says, no, we would never do that. Well, that's that they they saw wrong. So, again, you have he said, she said there. I don't have any way to make sense of who's of which is correct. Like, I, you know, neither of us do. So at that point, um, you have definitely some he said, she said. I don't think you can believe everything that's in the Wolfpack report because, again, they have a vested interest in seeing the stock go down. So if they're going to exaggerate one direction or another, I'm sure that they're going to say, oh, yeah. You know, if they're describing the color of paint, you know, in the warehouse, they'd be like, oh, it's a terrible drab, you know, unhappy looking versus, oh, it's a beautiful, bright facility where they could clearly manufacture wonderful things. You know, just like stuff like that, they can spin it how they want to spin it. But there's so much meat to their report that there's, I mean, there's got to be a, a tremendous amount of truth to it. Uh, you just, it couldn't all be, it, it couldn't be all be false. Yeah. There just has to be some truth there. They just walked into the buildings. Nobody stopped them <laughs> and just started looking around. Well, yeah. And speak to that a little bit because you're a, you're an aviation lifer. You've been in tons of facilities. You know, we talked about some of the amazing ones with Honda and uh, Bombardier. You've been in some of these amazing facilities. Can you just, can you just walk into the door? <laughs> there is no way you're walking to the door. There, there's guards, there's electronic security, there's cameras. There's no way you're getting anywhere near a production part. No way. And to, to, to walk into a facility and start looking around and poking around and nobody stop you is, a, is a alarming. 
alarming. If it actually if it actually happened, that's alarming. Well, there's a photo. I mean, it shows it's got Ehang's logo on the door and you can kind of see a it's a crazy kind of ominous photo where you, the door's open and you can see like the shape, the kind of familiar shape of their window of their main like uh, driver's side or passenger side window of their their vehicle. And yeah, so I mean, some of that stuff seems to be substantiated, but yeah, it's just really fascinating. And I, I mean, I don't feel tremendously shocked by not I don't have a, a super strong interest in Ehang. But I don't find it shocking that some of these EVTOL companies are going to like they have skeletons in their closet. There's just like a lot of money involved and they're making a lot of strong claims. Like you've said that some of them, if they can't deliver, they're probably trying to conceal that fact to an extent. And who knows if that's the case with Ehang, but. Well, you, you kind of wonder that too, Dan, is that you wonder how much uh, is in a lot of these uh, Aircraft companies, you see a lot of press releases, you, you you hear a lot of podcasts talking about them, you, they talk about the technology. What you don't have is what can happen at an aircraft company today. You can walk into a factory and take a look at it and get a sense of how many aircraft are on the, on the line, how much is sitting in tooling, how many people are on the production line, where do they have an engineering staff, you know, are, are they in a flight test mode, are they, are they doing flight tests, which are usually those indicators of company health. Right. If you don't see any aircraft in production, company's not viable. It's not going to be around much longer. Uh, so to and this is this is where I kind of wanted to get to about this whole discussion is how the heck are you valuating a who is valuing a company putting a market cap on a company in the billions of dollars that doesn't even have a production line today? I don't understand it. I understand it outside the aerospace market. I get it. Right, so the the WeekWorks is a great example of that of, of sort of the speculative nature of investing. And okay, I'm I'm I understand that. I understand that there was a model there, and people understand what their financial model was, and people could could address it and criticize it. But on these aircraft companies, there is nothing to criticize. There is no view of anything right now. You can't see the factory. You can't see the aircraft in flight. You've never seen an eVTOL aircraft fly a 30 minute flight on video. There's no YouTube video of that. I haven't seen it. Uh, and I'm looking, right? I'm looking to see if those things are happening. And it, and it just, it doesn't play well in the investment space. Uh, coming out of a pandemic, you should see a lot of critical reviews and overlook. And yeah, the technology is cool. I'm, I'm all for that. But you got to look at the investment side and the financial side of this thing. Is it, is it real? Because it can only hurt the industry if these things turn out to be not real. And they're just, uh, some of them may be fraudulent in some cases. I think we're going to find some of these things going to be fraudulent. Not say Ehang is, uh, but it's, it's possible. It's, it's possible. And it's not going to make the industry stronger. It's going to make it weaker. It's going to pull a bunch of money out of the industry that could go to productive things. And they won't be there. Yeah. Well, and of course, when you're, you're forced into the position to rebut a really damaging claim, just like if someone was to falsely accuse a person of a crime, right? It's like, oh no, like I didn't steal that. Like, how do you, it's hard to prove that you didn't do something and, and that first accusation can be stuck in your mind. So I'd encourage everyone to read Ehang's, you know, their rebuttal to Wolfpack's research and look through Ehang's articles, their videos, and try to discern as best you can for yourself because who knows what's real and what's not. It, it's hard, unfortunately in our society today, if you're like the first one to make that claim, I mean, 
it could be real or not true. There's fake news, there's misinformation, and there's every degree in between. So it's tough to know. Because like I said, they said one thing about the the motors that they saw being used, and Ehang said the other. Ehang could be telling the truth. We don't know. And so to, to jump to that conclusion is wrong, right? So we want to figure out. But it's hard to it's hard to have any way of substantiating that because it's not like you're going to walk back into their factory now, right? So until Ehang, you know, says, "Hey, we're going to do another test flight. We were bringing some prototypes out. Come check them out." It seems like a publicity tour might be a good uh, good thing to restore faith. That's exactly the way to handle it, and and it's not being handled that way. And I think you can say that about a lot of the EVTL companies today that they're making a lot of investor presentations, but they don't have any hardware or flying hardware. And I, yeah, go fly it. Right, the first one that puts up a video on YouTube of a thirty-minute flight flying at more than thirty knots, uh, you know, flying at one hundred and fifty knots or whatever they, they say their top speed is for for thirty minutes is going to be a game changer. But we don't have that video yet, and until we do, I think my my gut is to say I'm going to wait and see because when when they do that, then then there is something there. If they're flying five-minute, ten-minute flights, it is meaningless. We need to get to thirty-minute flights. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. And please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.